Hello everybody and welcome to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We are bringing together the best technical leaders from across the pathology sector of the NHS to talk about topics which matter and challenges that they're currently facing today. Uh, so my name is Harry Lons, I'm a senior consultant for the pathology market here at Evolution and today uh, we have a fantastic lineup of four female leaders who I will pass over for introductions before we delve into today's topic. Um, so Jane Mills, should we start with yourself? Thank you. Uh, my name is Jane Mills. I'm currently working as Head of Pathology Transformation for NHS England. Um, I think I've been in this post for about a year and a half. Um, prior to that, I did a little bit of work during the COVID times supporting the supplies to labs. And prior to that, I'd spent 10 years as um, both Operations Director and Chief Operating Officer, Stroke Managing Director for two of our uh, networks, one in Liverpool, one in Coventry, um, but um, pathology has not been my lifelong career and I'm sure we'll get into that at some point. Thank you very much. Over to yourself, Katie. Hello, I'm Katie Moss. I'm the Programme Director for Greater Manchester Imaging and Pathology Networks. Um, I've had a, a, a unusual route to my current role. I've experienced a number of roles in several organisations across Greater Manchester. Um, I've done clinical audit transformation elective access and program and project management, um, which has led me into this particular role that I'm currently in. Thank you very much. And yourself, Saga? Thank you. Um, so my name is Saga Misagan Kali. I'm currently the Managing Director for Northwest London Pathology, which is a joint venture NHS organisation across the sector delivering diagnostic laboratory services. I am a biomedical scientist by training, so I actually came into the profession um, as a histopathology um, biomedical scientist, but over the years have branched out into lots of different arenas within pathology, you know, with training and governance and operational management and all sorts of things. And yes, you know, getting to sort of senior leadership roles the last 10 years, I guess, is has been um, where I've been focusing more on executive leadership. So yeah, excited to be part of this conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. And lastly, yourself, Deborah. Hi, Harry. Thanks ever so much. So I'm Deborah Padgett. I'm current Institute of Biomedical Science president. Um, and in my day job, I am clinical pathology lead in Northumbria Healthcare NHS Foundation Trust. I am also Northeastern North Cumbria Pathology Network operational lead as well. So a few different hats just to in hats. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think most of us will say exactly the same thing over the course of the podcast. Um, I am a biomedical scientist through and through. It is the core of everything that I do and everything that I ever have done since graduating university. Um, I'm a medical microbiologist by training, but a bit like Saga, I have I've taken a few different routes to get to where I'm at today, which I'm sure we will um, investigate as we through today's conversation. Perfect. Well, uh, now that we've established and gone through all the introductions, um, let's move over to the topics that we're going to focus on today, all obviously based around uh, female leadership across the NHS and more specifically uh, within pathology. Um, now, obviously, you've highlighted there, um, touched upon it there around um, how everyone kind of makes their own way into leadership roles in pathology through different routes. Um, it would be good to understand how you've all got to your impressive titles that you have got today. Um, and obviously go through the routes that have led you to this career path and obviously to where you are now. Um, start with yourself, Jay. Do you want to run through that? Um, yeah, I, I'm, you know, I'm not quite sure that I could be so definitive about how I ended up um, in where I am today other than to say my, my pre-NHS career was in engineering and manufacturing industry um, and I worked as a 
uh, as a senior manager across uh, a manufacturing engineering company um, and had an interesting experience in that world as a female leader if if you know and it felt quite tokenistic when I was promoted to the um the sort of management board for the factories that I was responsible for because my my picture in the foyer was the only female amongst a a, a team of, of men I was only in my sort of late late 20s early 30s at that time when I joined in the NHS you know it's kind of different field there's lots more women present and I came in to the NHS as a procurement director for Shropshire um and uh I suppose what was identified was some of the behaviours and skills that I brought from 20 years of engineering and manufacturing was very much about problem solving and um, process. And um, I think that was recognised as having some synergy with some of the programmes of work that needed to take place across uh, a number of areas to support innovation, modernisation, transformation, and, uh, you know, it was almost at the time when Lord Carter was very um, uh, very publicly promoting the idea of consolidation of pathology services. Um, and so I was uh, asked to take on the role of programme director for a number of programmes in Coventry and Warwickshire that were looking at transformation of which one was pathology. There was a range of other system changes they were looking to do. And I had quite an affinity with pathology. I think it, it had so much synergies with my engineering background that I walked into pathology and I sort of thought, I know this. This is, this has so many kind of, you know, it's a quality system that I was used to with ISO 9000 in my manufacturing environment. I suddenly could understand what these people uh, as scientists were trying to achieve. So I suddenly felt at home in the NHS, which actually um, I'd probably acknowledged that I'd, I'd struggled with coming from a very... Uh, uh, manufacturing background. Um, so that's how I started to become aware of pathology. When the opportunities came to apply to lead Coventry and Warwickshire Pathology Services, their ops director, I thought, well, you know what, give it a go. Um, and I was quite pleased and proud to be asked to take that role on. Um, and that's how I got into pathology. Um, and it's been the steepest learning curve of my life, Deborah. <laughs> but you actually hugely pleasurable for lots of reasons linked to um, feeling like I can make a difference but also feeling like actually this is a profession that is so intrinsic in everything we do in health that actually it, it absolutely needs to be um, brought more prominently to people's attention and get the right investment so so that's how I came into pathology. Well, thank you very much for sharing and um, over to yourself Katie how did you end up to where you are today? Okay, so I've got to um, acknowledge and recognise uh, Deborah because I too started my career um, in microbiology. So I graduated in 2000 with a 2-1 degree in, microbi in biomedical science um, and was very fortunate really that I quickly secured a trainee biomedical scientist role in microbiology um, at Stepping Hill uh, Hospital Stockport Foundation Trust. Um, and I worked there for 13 years in the laboratory, which I um, really enjoyed during that time I was there. Um, but I, whilst I was um, in the laboratory, I completed, um, I went from a trainee biomedical scientist, completed my training, went to a specialist biomedical scientist. And, and then I also undertook my master's in biomedical science at the Manchester Metropolitan University. And I did a postgrad certificate in management studies. Um, and 
until 2013, I was still in the laboratory, but then due to personal circumstances, I took a step back and I moved from pathology into clinical audit, um, but also supporting uh, the clinical support services. Um, and it was during that time, really, that I started to develop my program and project management skills. Um, so I went on then to do the Prince Foundation practi Practitioner Programs. Um, and that really gave me sort of the strong foundation for applying that knowledge to areas of the uh, clinical support services. Um, and then from there, really, I didn't kind of look back, if I'm honest. I went then into uh, transformation roles um, in several organisations in Greater Manchester. Um, I then went to do work on elective access and programme and project management. Um, and going across those different elements really gave me that thorough understanding of all the operational processes involved in the patient pathway. And it's been uh, vital, I, I found in my current role, to working with the various services and colleagues across the, the system and the network in Greater Manchester. So that's my route to where I am now. And I, like Jane, I am thoroughly proud to be in the position that I'm in. Um, I don't take it for granted at all. Um, I really do champion female leaders in pathology. Um, I, you know, from my er earlier career, I did notice that there were quite a lot more of, um, it was a male-dominated area. But I'm really proud now that the female leaders are starting to come through, um, you know, and get into the space that we're in now. So I'm really encouraging of anybody else who wants to come through. I love that. Thank you very much for sharing. That was good. And uh, Sagar, do you want to talk about your journey here? Sure. Thank you. It's it's lovely listening to everybody else, actually. So um, so my, my again, start with, with the profession was, was actually through, um, you know, personal circumstances, um, which were you know, quite sad and tragic, effectively. My my mum was diagnosed with, with cancer um, just as I was finishing university. Um, my intention was not to become a biomedical scientist. I wasn't studying a biomedical science degree. I had done applied human biology and wanted to go into research. Um, but sadly, you know, um, my mum was diagnosed. She, you know, long story short, she was in hospital for some time and um, had um, started her treatment um, and and very sadly went very quickly reacted to that and, and went into a coma for six months and in that time I was in the hospital with her got to know lots of her um, you know um, doctors and oncologists and lots of people coming and going and it was actually one of the oncologists that said to me what are you doing with your career what are you what, what are you up to and and um, I said I've just finished university effectively you know I don't this is what I wanted to do I don't know what I'm going to do now and he suggested I go and talk to the the senior chief of one of the laboratories at um, the general hospital that we were at um, to see if there were any opportunities. And actually, I did that. I, I went and had a conversation. And at the time, they were advertising for a trainee role in cytology, um, which, um, you know, it was at the beginning of when my mother was ill, I applied for that. And actually, I didn't get it. It turns out I didn't get that role um, because I didn't have um, a direct biomedical science degree. And they, you know, the person that did get it had one that didn't need conversion and obviously the right choice for them at the time. Um, and then six months later, another trainee post in histopathology. And, and that is when my journey started really within, within the laboratories. Um, again, moving forward, it's interesting to note that the, the person that got that other trainee role, I ended up getting married to a few years later. So, you know, such is fate and, and how it navigates us into, into our lives. But essentially from doing that um, trainee role, um, I went on to do a master's. Um, 
stayed in that environment for some time um, and then looked to want to progress into more senior roles. And, and again, that, that brought me down to London, um, which um, but then gave me the opportunity to sort of work in larger, larger organizations. And again, it was at the time where lots of reorganization was taking place. Um, you know, um, those formations of partnerships and joint ventures. So again, um, I was able to, to, um, you know, get my interest in lots of different areas as change was happening around me. And, and actually, you know, sometimes you think, you know, why are people doing this this way? Cause if you did it that way, it would be much better. Um, and, and so I, I put my hands up quite a bit and wanted to get involved in things that were going on. So, you know, it's from working in the laboratories, I could then, um, you know, found opportunities as organizations changed around me to work in um, quality and governance, um, to take on um, training and development um, work and management for people outside of my discipline, um, as well as then doing, um, you know, direct um, sort of general management, which then took me on to do a professional doctorate. And I did that in um, change transformation um, linked to, you know, um, operating within what we, you know, Jane mentioned, you know, the engineering thing um, link. And I think that's that's so interesting because, you know, people, processes and, and systems is effectively what pathology is, right? And I think that's, again, what's, what's interested me into wanting to control all the areas of that to make it better and make improvements. So, um, and that's really, you know, by being by being interested in what was going on around me is, is how I've navigated my way around and finding the interesting roles that I've had um, to becoming more into a, a, the realm of management. And again, I didn't take any particular academic qualifications for, for that management journey. Um, I did lots of different things like um, Katie mentioned as well, you know, Prince to qualifications and other sort of management qualifications, but um, but most recently I've I've just finished uh, an executive MBA um, again just for my own sake to you know to to have something that I can say well actually I've done this role for so long but now here is something academic and that can sit around it and and I think it's the, it was the right time for me to do that as well in in the sense that um, you know you understand a lot more and you've got a lot more lived experience to apply to to what you're learning which is which is really helpful but effectively that is that is how I've ended up where I am and in the role that I'm doing well thank you for sharing that was another fantastic and fascinating uh, career path there um, and over to yourself Deborah with your many hats how have you got to here today <laughs> Thank you. Um, do you know what I find really interesting? That none of us have had a particularly linear route or a, or a traditionally linear route to where we are today. Um, and I just hope that all those listening hear that and understand that there isn't one traditional pathway to reach a senior leadership position. We all find our way by taking the opportunities afforded to us as we come across them. Um, so much like Saga, I, I didn't have the best start. So so my mum was also quite seriously poorly when I was doing my A-levels. Um, I'd love to be able to blame her for getting really awful A-level results, but actually I probably didn't put in enough work either. Um, and I think that was probably the first um, challenge that I came across in my life, um, for which now I'm eternally grateful, because if I had have got the A-levels that I wanted, I'd be doing pharmacology now. Um, and certainly not biomedical science. So um, the sliding doors moments of the things that happen in our lives where we take an alternative path and find the way around the challenge is absolutely critical to what we do every day and also probably makes us better leaders because of that. Um, so I went to university um, through clearing and ended up doing a degree in physiology. 
thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, but graduated with a degree I wasn't really sure what I was going to do with. Um, I'd met my husband-to-be at university and moved over to sunny Cumbria and got a job um, in a laboratory because I knew I loved science. That was always the root of everything that I wanted to do. Um, so joined the profession as a medical laboratory assistant um, in Carlisle in microbiology, and that's where it started. Um, and I had a fantastic uh, senior manager within the department who championed the ability to be uh, still be able to become a biomedical scientist. So I did my top-ups at Northumbria, um, state registered, well, HCPC registered, um, and immediately transitioned onto a master's in medical microbiology, and my love for microbiology kind of flourished from there. This is the bit where my career kind of stagnated for a little while, and it's the bit that I talk most to aspiring leaders about. Um, people feel that they get stuck at this stage in their career, that kind of band six time of life where you feel like you're doing an awful lot of qualifications, you're doing your masters, you're attending lots of qualifications and courses, um, but you don't feel like you're progressing, certainly not at, at the rate that you want to when you're kind of 25-ish and have grand hopes and dreams for where you're going to be. And all I would say at that stage is make the most of it. That's the time where you are really honing your skills and becoming the expert practitioner that you are going to absolutely rely on as you progress in your career. So I did that for a little while. Um, and then the itchy feet took hold and I kind of took a sideways step into quality management, still within pathology. Um, and it was great because that was my opportunity to broaden my horizons and see the other disciplines, see outside of the microbiology doors, um, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And I did that at a time when we transitioned from CPA to 15189. Um, so a fantastic opportunity to, for me to develop personally, but to also help my teams develop um, and also for the benefit of the patients that we serve every day. At the same time as that, I also joined IBMS Council. So the Institute has been part of my life since the day I joined pathology. Um, but it was my opportunity to kind of give something back and I joined council at that time. So two new jobs for the price of one. It was a little bit challenging, um, but nothing that I wasn't going to grab with both hands. Um, so I, I stayed in quality management for about six years and then I had a fantastic opportunity to go back to the department that taught me everything that I knew about pathology as their operational manager in North Cumbria. Um, so I went back, uh, we, we had a little spell, I, I don't know if you know the virus that we had to deal with for a couple of years, but that kept us all very busy uh, in microbiology. Um, and I spent quite a bit of time on the phone to Jane asking her for extra kits most days. <laughs> um, so we did that. Um, and then I had the opportunity to move across to Northumbria as their pathology service manager and in my current role that I'm in now. All the way through that, I was still building my skill set, my toolbox that I like to refer to it as, of all of the different bits and bobs that you need to become a senior leader and, and really lead with that level of compassion and authenticity and empathy that you need to have. Um, as a senior leader within the NHS and more broadly. Um, so I've also done um, a master's in leadership management and organisational development um, and attended quite a few senior leadership courses along the way, um, taking off mentoring and coaching and all of those really fulfilling things that are kind of adjuncts to the job that I do as well. Um, 
I was also hugely, hugely honoured to be put forward as president for the Institute of Biomedical Science. Um, and never did I think I'd get to be that figurehead of our profession, which is a phenomenal honour. It really, really is. But the key thing for me in that role is I am only the third female president of the Institute that has been around for more than 120 years. So being able to evidence to young aspiring females within our profession that you can do that, you can go from being a band to laboratory assistant all the way to the top of the profession and it is something you can aspire to do and I think that's pretty special. Great was there Deborah thank you very much for that um, and I think um, obviously like you summed up as well obviously we've got four people here that have taken different paths to get to where they are today and obviously there's no one path to get there um, but likewise obviously when you're going through those paths you're always going to face challenges obviously no matter what um, sector or area that you're in um, so what would be good is just to share some of those challenges that you faced um, and those bumps along the way starting with yourself Jane yeah I suppose um, challenges have come from a number of areas my uh, my I suppose most significant challenge is my own inner monologue which I think is probably present for quite a lot of people and it may not be gender specific it's but you know for, for me that's been one of my biggest challenges to overcome is that sense of um I, I'm not going to be able to do well at this I'm going to be found out all of that kind of inferiority thing um I think as a as a working mom at times it gets incredibly difficult as well to juggle things and if I cast my mind back 20 30 years ago when I first started taking on leadership roles um I don't think it was quite as supportive as it is possible to be now. I think things that are around us now are incredibly um, much better, um, but it's still a challenge. And, and I think there is much that we have in our profession that is still um, difficult for people with different responsibilities to juggle. So that I know that as a leader, whatever position you have as a leader, uh, you need to carry constantly that mindful reflection on how we continue to support people who may not always want to feel able to share their situation but but can be trying to juggle a lot of difficult caring things so that's uh, a challenge and then i think for, for, for me personally and you know, although i would say and i think other uh, you know the colleagues on the call are saying the same about the the variety of their background who's you know not been an inhibitor but that at times um people will represent that as being a problem and I'm working out how do you um, not allow that to become a barrier, but acknowledge that you may not have the same experiences as they are judging as necessary to be able to fulfil the role. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that you can't. And I carry that, particularly as someone who's not got that um, biomedical science or, or scientific training, um, and that can get levelled uh, against me at times. Thankfully, I've... Um, as most leaders will will attest to, you learn to listen very carefully and seek out experts and and sound out ideas with with people as you go. So challenges become uh, are ever present, um, and uh, anybody also running a large program will also attest to there's quite a lot of political challenges and and budgetary and financial challenges that get levelled at you. Um, so loads of 
Well, those are various where challenges can manifest. I think coping with them is uh, something that I, I think women do quite well. Um, I'm going to wave the flag for women here because we, we seem to learn to multitask very early in our, our life. Um, I, I think for the most part, we learn how to hold things in perspective and we do have a tendency to be quite chatty and collaborative, which enables us, I think, to draw out some really good advice from people as we go on the way. Love that, Jane. Uh, Kate, have you got any comments on that? What, what, what challenges have you came across during your journey? <laughs> I'd probably come at this a little different to Jane in that I um, can firmly say that I've faced significant challenges in my career, but most notably the difficulties that I've faced have been with my mental health um, and the impact that this has had on the ability for me to really progress in my uh, career. Um, I think uh, I've I've had this self throughout my career, self-perpetual cycle of of really trying to cover up almost some of the personal struggles that I've gone through. Um, particularly with like self-worth, self-esteem, um, which really has, has sort of followed my ra- me round my career. Um, and as a, a way to sort of cover that up, I was trying to people please. So I was, I was constantly um, working as hard as I could to try and demonstrate my worth rather than um, et- let anybody see my, my struggles that I was having. And to some extent, that did actually get abused, if I'm quite per- perfectly honest, because when you're trying to balance work, a working mom, um, trying to balance all the expectations on you for certain roles, um, and then you're struggling with that separately, um, it, it's been quite difficult for me to overcome that. And I think back in my earlier career, um, mental health was still really highly stigmatised. Um, you know, speaking to you now, it's something... I've only recently opened up about, even, even though a lot of people knew about it, I've not necessarily spoken about it um, on, in such a public forum. Um, and I think the stigmatization of mental health was probably, um, in my experience, um, you know, especially in corporate departments, always seen as a bit of a weakness. So that if you were struggling or you were unable to sort of maintain the unwritten rule, if you like, that you should be available 24-7, um, that's, you know, therefore you were seen as weak. Um, and it was often noted, I felt, that if, you know, success was perceived that the more senior role um, that you were in, the more time that you should spend emailing people outside of work and throughout the weekend. And and so part of that then has obviously um, helped, you know, I've overcome my mental health struggles. Um, and some of that has been about finding my organisational culture and fit and actually... Um, I have experienced a time in in one organisation where um, I was advised that my background and life experiences meant that I was unlikely to move any higher. Um, And that's difficult, really difficult to hear. Um, But I've used that feedback now and it's really sort of like fired me um, for the drive, you know, to continue to develop myself, um, really understand that actually, you know, I'm stronger than I know. I've got that resilience. Um, I'm more than um, capable of doing the role that I'm in. Um, and, you know, getting that self-belief back for me has been the biggest challenge that I've faced. And, you know, I think we'll come on to it later on is about the imposter syndrome because that's something that I've experienced. But that self-awareness of where I know what my triggers are, I know how I now know how to start saying no and know what the priorities are and know that I don't have to keep proving myself 
to people because, you know, my work says it for itself. I don't have to continually try and sort of um, continue on this people-pleasing merry-go-round um, because actually, you know, this girl can is what they say. Um, hashtag this girl can. So, yeah, um, for me, I have had quite significant challenges, but, you know, I've overcome it and I've come out better on the other side, certainly. So um, that's my my little speech, if you like, for uh, of how what the bumps of the road have been. Yeah, no, I love that. Very strong messages there. Really appreciate you sharing that, Katie. Um, over to yourself, Sega. Thanks. I, I think, you know, a lot of what has already been said, I, I would echo similar experiences in terms of, you know, the, the, the your inner voice and what it's telling you in terms of, you know, whether you have the capabilities to take on the, the role that you've been given, you know, so others have seen it in you, but, you know, do you see it in yourself? And, and that's, you know, level of self-doubt, I think, is there in all of us, which um, I think we do need to get rid of um, and work towards getting rid of. Um, but I think, you know, it's... Um, for me, challenges again when I had um, took my most senior role on, so my my very first managing director role. I had very young children. I had a, I had a one year old and a and a four and a half year old, and uh, and you know the expect and and I was commuting as well. So it wasn't I wasn't working in the same city that that um, I wasn't living in the same city that I was working in. So you know that that is all kinds of juggling, isn't it? Um, as as you know, you've all described. Um, being able to manage that and being present all the time and not feeling guilty about the time that you're not spending with the little children, the fact that they've all been carted off into um, into um, you know childcare instead of being at home, you know, and you know feeling judged by others who have chosen to stay at home with their children during these sort of precious early years, and you know that in itself becomes a a challenge in your own mind, and I think that's that's something that I've I've had to learn to 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 sort of adapt and adopt, but. At the same time, I think what drove me to to do the things that I've done is is knowing that actually, but well, you know, one of my children is is a is a girl, and and to have I think a mother that has a a, a goal and a career and is an achiever, I think is a really good example to set, um, and I think that has helped me sort of um, spur me on, and also for my son to to say actually, you know, women do have careers, women do progress, and and I think that's really important as a as a role model. Um, to, to have right from the outset so that that's how I have sort of justified I guess to myself you know some of the the the, the um I guess the lack of availability that I had to my children when I in their younger younger years but somehow that's kind of changed a little bit now I think the pandemic has helped us so I think with with people coming through the ranks now hopefully we'll have some of the opportunity to to look at more flexible working remote working and all of the things that enable that facilitate perhaps the family life balance um, with work a, a little bit more. But again, you know, um, I have um, had challenges in the past where, again, holding a really senior position and have invited, say, external folk to a, a large meeting. When I have joined the room, someone's asked me, where where do they get their next cup of tea from? Before And then realizing that actually now I'm chairing that session. And, um, and, you know, all of a sudden all the business cards come out and everybody wants to give it, give one to you because they suddenly realize you are, you're in charge of something. So really interesting dynamics, I think, with some of our uh, male counterparts around the place. And I think that's then something to, to be balanced. But I think, you know, the key thing has been honing, honing skills, you know, my own communication skills, my own leadership development, my own sort of emotional intelligence in, in terms of being able to deal with all of these things. Um, and actually, 
for me, it's kind of like building a sisterhood as well. I've always been a champion of, of women and girls. Um, and, you know, I have really looked hard in all the organizations that, I, that um, I've worked in, in being able to facilitate a way to look for the bright sparks, not just females, but, all, you know, everybody, but actually being able to, to enhance their capability and the, the engagement that some of our females, um, female colleagues have in, in the organizations. And again, I've experienced um, and had challenging um, um, aspects of, of my own career where someone who has been a, my, a female leader who I have reported to has, has you know, done their utmost not to um, help and facilitate and, and help you progress. And I think, you know, I learned from some of those bad leaders and bad managers exactly what I didn't want to be. And I think that's, um, that is something that I will continue to do and, and try and help, um, you know, help others to define themselves a bit more um, and not, not try and hone ourselves into, you know, you have to be rude, aggressive and abrupt um, because that's some of how some of the men have behaved um, in the past and have got to some of this aggressive um, sort of ways of working and having studied um leadership and i'm sure all of you have read all of these things and have studied it as well you know that the certain types of behaviors um that some um people display and and the impact it has on organizations in terms of you know the spiraling down of of um you know um behaviors and, and actually some of the narcissistic kind of characteristics can, can that can come into becoming really toxic work environments. So I think, you know, these are all ongoing challenges, I think, that we will we all have and, and we do need to address them. But um yeah, it doesn't take away from the fact that I don't think, you know, everybody's cracked being a um a balanced leader um, in any organization just yet because there's still lots of biases, I think, um, for females. Um even now. Um so yeah, there's a long way to go. Well great references there. I really appreciate you sharing that. Um over to yourself, Deborah. Thanks, Harry. Um, b- before I start, I'd, I really just want to acknowledge what Casey shared with us earlier. Um, it takes a lot of guts to be that open and transparent and tell your personal story. So I really just want to call that out. And good on you, Katie. Good stuff. Um, <clears throat> for me personally, challenges um, are quite similar to Jane's, really. Most of mine are my own internal challenges that I that I set myself. Um, I expect probably far too much of myself. I certainly do on a daily basis. That to-do list is never achievable. And then I berate myself when I cannot or do not achieve it and don't don't make it. Um, I think that's because of the ongoing personal struggle to always be better or to be the person that I think people expect me to be and not necessarily live up to what I would be happy with for myself. And, and it, again... Um, I have a daughter as well, and it really allowing or, or showing and role modeling the behavior that allows her to be comfortable in her own skin is something that I think is really, really important as a leader as we move forward as well. Um, I think it also speaks to that role modeling piece more broadly as well. We, we need to be that open, honest, transparent person about the challenges that we face every day because we're all going through them, you know, We've, we've fought to get to where we were, to where we are now, but now we have to be prepared to help everybody else up instead of fighting to, to kind of keep our position and keep everyone else down. That, that's, that's not a healthy way of leading and managing, and it's certainly not um, a pleasant environment for anyone to work in. So battling that toxic work culture sometimes 
is absolutely critical and will only overcome that by role modeling behaviors by which we would want to be measured ourselves. So I think that's absolutely key. Some of my other challenges are, are the, the daft ones, my inability to say no. Um, my husband always tells me when I go out to a meeting, for goodness sakes, will you just sit on your hands and for once not volunteer for something. Um, again, it's because I want the best for, for our profession. I want the best for my team that I work with every day. I want the best for the patients that we do. Um, and I'm a strong believer that if that's what you want, you have to be prepared to put your money where your mouth is. Um, however, in doing that, I sometimes just load my plate a little bit too much. And I think sometimes it's actually healthy and certainly healthier to say no and limit what you are doing. It's not a negative thing. It's preserving that balance in life and being able to commit as much as you possibly can to get the best outcome for everybody involved. So so please, um, kind of wonky message, don't be afraid to say no sometimes, both for yourself, but also for the people that you are trying to help. Um, generational challenges have been something for me. Um, you know, I'm a proud Northeast girl. Um, I did once attend uh, some media training where I was told to be less Geordie. I didn't take that very well. Nope. Very proud of my heritage. <laughs> um, it's funny as well now that I'm back working in Northumbria. I'm definitely getting more and more Geordie as the days go on, but I'm very proud of that and we all should be. It's it's what's made us the people that we are. Um, but I do remember after having the kids reasonably early on in my career, my mum couldn't wrap her head around the fact that I was going back to work full time, that I was very career driven, and that I was almost made to feel guilty about that. Again, one size doesn't fit all. Some people will absolutely choose to take a career break or work part time. They'll find the thing that's right for them. For me, going back to work is the thing that was going to mean that I was the best possible version of myself for my children and their development, but I was still getting something for me as part of that. So do what do what you need to achieve your development and your inner balance with yourself. And I think the other key thing is um, I'm always learning. There's never a day goes by where I don't seize the opportunity to learn something new or grow that skill set. Um, but again, just be careful that you're not overloading what you're doing. Um, so I've got a raft of papers on my bedside table that I really want to read. I'll get to them one day. Um, but in the meantime, I just see that as a little challenge to, you know, tick through that pile of work. <laughs> I love that. And this is some great advice uh, within that as well. So no, I appreciate sharing that. Um, and like like um, you touched upon there, obviously, everyone here has had to fight um, to get towards the titles that they are and obviously make their way up the career ladder. Um, and get, get to do, you touched upon it around the imposter syndrome and obviously that's a big big challenge that everyone uh, a lot of people do face but and don't often share and talk about it so I'd like to spend a little bit of time around imposter syndrome and how that's kind of affected you and, and you've managed to overcome it I think um, starting with yourself Katie obviously you mentioned it briefly before yeah so I've definitely experienced imposter syndrome on a number of occasions throughout my career Um, most recently in my current role um when I found myself leading several operational and strategic meetings uh, with colleagues who have been significantly involved in my earlier career, with a number of them either directly involved in my training or my line management arrangements. And then I found it really strange to be in the position that I'm in because I'm now leading the networks and I'm conscious that my role has been elevated 
Um, so the imposter syndrome definitely becomes triggered. Um, certainly when I start to experience that self-doubt, sort of question my abilities, um, sometimes find it slightly intimidating in certain um, arenas, if you, if I'm honest. Um, and I think sometimes it's, you know, you try to demonstrate, um, and you become sort of fixated on trying to demonstrate your technical knowledge, um, show that you've got the same level of experience as the people in the group and that actually you're in the role because you're good at the role and you're worthy of the role. Um so, yeah, I often find it quite difficult sometimes in certain situations like that to get my point across in a concise way. I can often stumble. I find it, you know, frustrating that I can become flustered during discussions sometimes. But that's part and parcel of the learning process and developing myself. And, you know, um, and it's still that bit of, um, you know, I am worthy in the role. I'm in the job because, you know, I like to think that I am good at what I do. Um and just going back to what Deborah said, you know, I too, like the ladies, I've got a, a young daughter, she's 14 years old. So for me, having experienced a lot of the things with mental health and imposter syndrome, um, and that, you know, I want to make sure that I am a good role model for my daughter so she doesn't experience the things that I went through. Um, and I certainly do uh, try to be as uh, positive with her as much as possible. So I have a regular thing that she hates. She'd probably kill me for saying it, but... I do send her mum's motivational messages just to build that belief that actually you can, you know, it's the, the way to uh, interact with a 14-year-old is we do it by text message or WhatsApp. That's the way to get, yeah, get your message across and get it communicated. So I do continually try and um, support her um, mental health and actually make sure that she's got that belief as she starts to grow up that she can achieve what she wants to achieve. Um, and she can get to, uh, you know, she can be successful in her own right. Um, so, yeah, I think um, imposter syndrome, um, I don't think, you know, if I don't think it matters at what, whatever level you're at, there will be an element of, of experiencing that throughout your career. Well, love that, Katie. I see you self nodding, Jane. Have you got comments on that? Yeah, I think, um, it, I suppose my experience of, uh, the imposter syndrome is, is is less about linking it to the role now as so much as linking it to situations I find myself in and and potentially doubting that I've got the knowledge and experience to be able to carry me through that particular um, experience. Um, and, and I suppose what, what I try therefore to do is prepare as well as I can for the situation that I'm going into. Um, and you know, I think it's a, uh, I think it's probably Alex Ferguson that was famous for saying, you know, "Prepare to fail to prepare, or or prepare to fail." And and it's quite a simple thing to keep reminding yourself on that you can perhaps calm yourself and and feel less like an imposter if you've taken that little bit more time to make sure you're prepared for the situation. And if it if it genuinely is a situation you've not been in before. Um, to try and seek out counsel and experience from someone who perhaps has been in those situations, and, and, and undoubtedly, as you walk through your uh, your work life and your career, you you start to realise that the worst that can happen may be not as bad as you think it does anyway. Um, and actually, always being honest and kind in any situation will carry you through most things. So, learning those kind of um, self-awareness feelings and coping strategies can and make you feel less of an imposter 
and also in, in in my particular role, I know I'm probably the least least knowledgeable person in most forum I go into, and my role is to try and explore out their knowledge and experience to help guide me on what to do, um, and that makes me feel a lot calmer too. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm not there to prove I know more than anyone else because I don't. I'm actually there to make sure I've elicited the best knowledge and advice from everybody to then steer a route for people. And I think, it, it, you know, it's cliched, but I think the older you get, um, the less of an imposter you feel like. Love that, Jane. Thank you very much for that. Um, over to Celsiga. Yeah, I like uh, what Jane just said about the older you you get, the the less the less you you feel it or or actually care to kind of. Um, let it take over i think um and i think you know for me i don't think i have fully ever truly experienced um you know what lots of people have described as is as imposter syndrome and and i hope that doesn't make me sound like i'm all narcissistic and and um i think i'm brilliant at everything because that's not the case but i think i think it's like like jane it's more situational rather than about a specific role that you're holding and and like um she's described i think it the the way for me to embrace it and to get through it is is by knowing all as much of the facts as i need to know or that i can know about that particular situation i think that that really does help you navigate through the the nervousness that might seep in or or the way that you think you're being viewed by others um one of the things i've always also had is you know english isn't my first language um, but I have lived here a very long time, and sometimes I bring in some level of doubt into whether are people understanding what I'm saying. Am I am I being clear enough? Am I using the right words? Um, and funnily enough, as 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 you know, we we talked about getting older. Um, you know, the, there's that you know the the subject of of the menopause that people don't talk about very much anymore either. But becoming more and more aware that. You know, we do get um, jumbled up sometimes, um, and and that happens as as a natural consequence of lots of things. It's not just about menopause, but you know, I think there is that fear that people view you as this weird bumbling buffoon sometimes. Um, but actually, that's not how you. That's just you. Nobody else sees that or thinks it. But and I think it's about accepting that and overcoming that and letting go of wanting to be perfect at everything all the time. Um, you know, I think we all want to do that, you know, have everything as perfectly um, managed as possible, especially when you're in these kind of leadership roles. Well, that's not real life, is it? And I think that's that's the thing we need to be mindful of. And to be able to, you know, actually give yourself a pat on the back or, a, you know, high five with somebody when when something has been really successfully done and then you've you've managed a, a really difficult situation or a, or, a, um, you know, a situation that's unfamiliar. So, um, yeah, I think those are some of the things that um, I was thinking about as we were talking about this. Yeah. No, I love that. Yeah, is that thing is that the more we normalise speaking about imposter syndrome and then obviously more people can recognise and that's actually what they're going through as well. Um, over to yourself, Deborah. have you got any comments on that? Thanks. Um, yeah, I, I, I kind of all of the comments that have been raised yeah. kind of resonate with me. It's, you know, I go in and I do my day job and I feel confident and I feel assured and I kind of know what I'm doing there are challenges every day in my job but that's what makes makes me love my job every day it's the situational stuff it's the stuff that comes out of left field it's the things that you're not really expecting the imposter syndrome to hit that that's when it's more challenging and and like Jane I, I, 
I prepare and I like to think that I'm I'm aware of all of the things that that may knock me um, as as part of that. But equally, I think we have to accept it's part of us. It's what makes us us. It's what makes us authentic leaders. I would hope it keeps me really grounded um, so that I don't come across as um, cocky or, um, you know, uh, that that kind of leader that we we all have come across in our professional careers. But but sometimes um, harnessing the things that we find the most challenging and imposter syndrome for me is absolutely one of them is the thing that keeps us a little bit more authentic in the things that we do every day. Um, it ridiculously, think, things like today, you know, the fact that I'm sitting here with some fantastic ladies talking about female leadership and did I ever think I was going to be doing this sort of thing even 10 years ago? Absolutely not. Um, but it's about, you know, Harry, you sent us some questions. We, we've, I'm sure we've all thought about it and prepared a little bit and we, we do as much as we possibly can to try and mitigate those challenges. Um, but you don't want to come across as so prepared and so scripted that you've lost the person that you are every day. And I think that's really key. Um, I had a fantastic example where I attended an all parliamentary health group on behalf of the Institute a few weeks ago at the House of Commons. It's not the first time I've been. It won't be the last time that I've been. I went through security. I was prepared for my meeting and I followed the signs and found myself stood in the middle of Westminster Hall. And suddenly I just couldn't pull myself together. It's not that I stood and cried or um, anything like that. I was just a little bit overwhelmed by the situation that I'd found myself in. And again, you know, from a jobbing microbiologist in a lab coat to standing somewhere where the Queen had lain a few weeks earlier and it just knocked me off my feet. But we have coping mechanisms. We have ways of dealing with it. Um, I personally, huge advocate for coaching and having someone to talk to about these things and how we... Um, deal with it and how we process it and what I've learned from that and the, the situations that I'll find myself in going forward but just being able to say to a, to a group like this and, and to colleagues in the department that it's fine to feel like that it's not the end of the world but being able to talk and be open and honest about it's really important um, and just touching on Sagara yeah I think it would be remiss not to mention the good old menopause in a in a session like this. And luckily, I'm only at the perimenopausal stage of things. But my God, the emotions are a bit of a roller coaster, girls, aren't they? Um, so yeah, standing in awards ceremony as a president of the institute and having a little tear roll down your cheek—that's a bit challenging. But again, I would hope that makes it real for everybody in the room. It's not a bad thing. But say, Garcia, have your hand up. Yeah, I was. I just wanted to, um, you know, de when when um, Debbie was talking about, um, you know, that that having someone to talk to, and I think that that's another thing. I think that has really changed over the years. Is that it, it used to be a much lonelier place. I think being, you know, leading something or being the head of something, um, it was kind of expected that you know, well, you're you're it, so go out and figure it out, and you know, you didn't have. Um, you didn't feel like you had some that you could go and talk to someone. And I think that's definitely something that's more acceptable. And actually, you know, as you say, mentoring and coaching and having conversations and, um, you know, people that are aligned with you, um, 
it's, it's, it's really good that we have that. But I think, yeah, we just need to be mindful of it and not, not lose sight of it because it's really important. No, I love that. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that comment. And obviously, as we touched upon here, obviously, these challenges and everything that you're feeling, obviously, um, that you have gone through it and obviously you've managed to overcome them. Um, but obviously, there's, there's going to be loads of people listening to this podcast and these discussions that are either going through it now and obviously don't have anyone to speak to or, um, yeah. So I guess it'd be good to go around the room and just um, each share a piece of advice that you really want to give to some uh, someone that's inspiring to lead within pathology or any sector within the NHS and outside it as well. Do you want to start with yourself, Jen? I'm afraid you were going to come to me uh, first. Um, I think I think it's come through for me in listening to Saga and Deborah and Katie talk about... Um, listening listening to yourself listening to everyone and and taking those opportunities not being frightened to have a go um but always being kind and being ready to listen i think would be the single most piece of advice that i would give like a reflect on all the the opportunities that i've been given and, and there are times when you felt that you needed to land and be a fully formed leader in that situation and yet I was more successful, and I have to say, when I reflect back, when I was more humble and worked with and collaboratively with people. Um, and so that would be my advice, is always be kind and be humble and be collaborative. Love that. Thank you very much. And yourself, Katie? Yeah, and similar to what Jay said, really, take the opportunities when they present, because you don't know when that opportunity is going to come again. Um, and actually, if you've got any self-doubt, you you know, you can overcome it and by doing the opportunities, it gets that little bit easier each time, Um, you know. So for me, it is, you know, it is, as I say, looking at um, at what's available to you and just got reaching outside your comfort zone, actually, because it gives you so much um, sense of achievement that it, as it, it does get easier and easier every time you try and um, and do it so that's probably my piece of advice love that you say so got yes again um J- jane mentioned being humble i think that's that to me is is the key thing you know i think we what we need to work towards is sort of the ability to be able to separate out and distinguish between um humility and um having fear um at, you know of of coming across a certain way you know so so i think you know it's important to to realize that you can feel like you're worthy of something without um you know portraying or feeling like you're entitled to something and i think there's a distinction there um the other thing is you know to to be kind to yourself you know you've this you're not alone um everybody has these feelings um and and it's about finding people to talk to about it and being able to actually track your own maybe track your own um learning in, in the journey that you're undertaking you know whether it's about the feelings and the anxiety or whether it's about the successes that you're making in your in your work um and actually you know put that alongside the the fear that you've got and, and realize that actually you are you are making a difference to whatever it is that you're undertaking so i think that's quite important strong message there and lastly yourself deborah yeah i've I've got a pad of paper in front of me and I've written the words humility, kind, authentic. I feel like I've said authentic quite a lot today, but being true to yourself is is absolutely key in all of this. Absolutely take your opportunities as they come along. Um, big believer in fate. Things happen for a reason, so make the most of it when you have those chances to do that. But also be prepared to fail 
and we don't often use the word fail anymore. Um, but sometimes you will. Sometimes you'll just get it wrong. And that's okay because that's where our best learning comes from. The opportunity to reflect on what we've done and how we would do it differently is absolutely critical to your own self-development as well as that of the team that you're working in. Um, find your ally. I think that's really important. That may be the team, that may be your best friend, that may be a coach or a mentor, but fundamentally have someone that you can talk to and talk openly and honestly, not um, the the picture of the person that you think you should be. Be yourself and, and be able to open it to somebody because it's absolutely critical and take the time to reflect on those conversations and the situations that you've found yourself in. And absolutely, at the bottom of this, celebrate your successes. We don't take enough time to just congratulate ourselves for the things that have gone well. They may be big things, they may be absolutely tiny things, but just take the time at the end of every day to find the thing that's gone well that day keeps you going. Thank you very much for that. And I just want to say some great advice shared there. Um, but before we do end the podcast, I just want to say thank you very much for sharing all your examples, obviously your stories, and obviously your advice there as well. It's so hard with these sorts of conversations just to fit it into an hour because I know we could all stay here for hours and hours and days and days to speak about these sorts of topics. Um, but yes, yeah, so obviously thank you to the guests that have participated today because I know um, some of the stories that are difficult to share, obviously I've never spoken about before in this sort of platform. So really appreciate that, Anna. I know the viewers are going to love it as well. So uh, thanks again to all our guests and thank you for listening. And we hope to join you next time.